There are certain texts in the Bible from which it would be easier to draw meaning, significance. There are some texts that we would more readily go to so as to be edified, texts which we find the meaning of which to be self-evident, texts which, without too much thinking, we're greatly encouraged by, or perhaps we're rebuked by them, but it's, it's not difficult to see how. The intersection of certain texts with our lives is plain to see. Those texts tend to be, for us, in the New Testament epistles. The reason I say that is because the epistles are the portion of God's Word that were written originally to a New Testament church. And here we are, a New Testament church. And so it tends to be that the epistles, more than perhaps any other section of God's Holy Word, it tends to be that section of the Bible that is most easily accessible to us. We love to be in Philippians. We love to meditate on rich truths as they're found in Ephesians. And it's not all that difficult to be encouraged. Paul writes to the Romans and he says, because we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And immediately, we're joy-filled. Now, there are questions to ask of that verse. There are questions that it's right to ask to probe more what it means to have peace with God and justification by faith in Jesus Christ. But normally, those questions come after the most immediate fruit, which is to be encouraged by such a profound truth in the gospel. A few chapters later, Paul writes, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and we rejoice. We don't need to turn to a commentary or to a study Bible, at least not immediately, to see the meaning of that text as it relates to our lives. And we could go on and on. There are other texts that are far harder to understand. There are other texts, the intersection of which with our lives is less plain. Laws in Leviticus. The instructions given in Exodus for the construction of the tabernacle. The wanderings in the wilderness in the book of Numbers. There are many other texts that are difficult for us. Difficult for us to draw life from. And yet, we want to affirm what Paul wrote to Timothy in his second pastoral epistle, and that is that all Scripture is God-breathed, and all Scripture is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. We hold on to that verse. And so the question is, how are such texts to be life-giving for us. Perhaps we're in one of those texts this morning. Matthew's genealogy. It's a list of names. Most of these names we're probably not even familiar with. And yet they're part of God's inspired word. And so my prayer consistently this week as I've 
meditated upon this text is that it would give us life as a church. That it would in no way sit lower down on some conceived hierarchy of Scripture, but we would see it to be inspired, inerrant, and sufficient to give us life. We may have many questions that we might ask of such a text. There are many questions which, if I were to to press for just a few minutes and ask you, what, what do we make of this text? Questions and questions would arise that we may want to ask of this text, not bad questions, not wrong to ask such questions. What I found as I've meditated upon this text is that eventually it begins to ask questions of us. The genealogy actually has some questions to ask of us. Questions concerning the nature in which we're living our lives. Questions concerning our response to Jesus Christ. Questions concerning our understanding of the gospel. Our understanding of God's grace at work in our lives. Questions concerning our understanding of God himself. And so as I have prayed that this text would be life-giving, I would ask you to pray, even now, that your hearts would be soft and ready to be examined this morning. That your hearts would be ready to respond to the questions that Matthew's genealogy asks of us in order that we would be trained in righteousness. Now, what are those questions? The first one, very simply, is whether we are living in light of this history. Are we living in light of this history? As Matthew records this genealogy, this list of names, he he gives us the heritage of the Lord Jesus. He is beginning a sustained case to defend the outrageous claim that he made in verse 1 of the gospel. If you remember back to last week, we looked at verse 1 of the gospel, which would function originally as something akin to a title. And Matthew made an outrageous claim that Jesus is the long-awaited-for king who has come to bring about the hopes of Israel and a blessing to the nations. To the original readers of Matthew, that would have been audacious to make such a claim. But that's how Matthew leads. And then what he does for the next two chapters is he lays out a case to defend that claim. first two chapters of Matthew are his prologue, and it is evidence after evidence to the end that Jesus truly is the Christ. So picture, Matthew's in a court of law and the judge summons him and says, Matthew, defend yourself. Defend the claim that you made that Jesus is the long-awaited for Messiah. And Matthew begins and the very first thing he does, the first thing he does as a matter of priority is to lay out the heritage, the genealogy of Jesus. Why would Matthew lead with such evidence? 
The answer is, in Matthew's day, in biblical times, a genealogy carried far more weight than it does perhaps in our day. We look into these things, but more as a, a matter of interest or even just amusement. In recent times, it's become quite the thing to do, is to trace your family heritage. You can go to websites, you can pay huge amounts of money, people invest enormous uh, quantities of time so as to explore their family history. A few years back, Laura's aunt did it for her side of the family. She spent many hours investigating the, the family history. She sent it in the mail to us. We have it at home. And it confirmed for us what we kind of already knew. When you go back beyond the Industrial Revolution in Northern Ireland, just about everyone was a potato farmer. We knew that. It confirmed it for us, but it doesn't change the way we live. Knowing that has zero implications on the way we perceive ourselves. It doesn't affect the decisions we make or the lifestyle we lead. Our heritage today is more a matter of interest than anything else. Not so in Matthew's day. In Matthew's day, genealogies carried an enormous weight. This is why there are countless genealogies found in the ancient world, in Scripture, outside of Scripture. It is not hard to find genealogies. It's why when you read through the Gospels and the book of Acts, people, characters, are often introduced into the narrative with reference to the house from which they come. This is James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Here's James, the son of Alphaeus. Isn't that Jesus, the son of Joseph, the carpenter? Here's Simon, the son of Jonah. You read through the Gospels, and often, as somebody comes into a scene, they're made reference to by virtue of the house from which they come. Their genealogy, as it were, orbit back only one generation, because that spoke volumes about a person. It told people, it signaled to people what to expect from this individual who he was, what his social standing was, even what his character would be. The genealogy carried weight in the time at which Matthew was writing. And so he leads not merely by tracing Jesus' genealogy back one generation to his father, but all the way back to Abraham. Matthew has invested many hours and with careful attention has recorded generation after generation to show us the heritage of this man of primary concern, as we said last week, is the fact that Jesus comes from the line of Abraham from the house of David. You see, verse 1 is a synthesis, if you like, of the rest of the genealogy. Matthew tells us in verse 1, he comes from the, the line of David and the line of Abraham, and then he just unpacks it for us for the next few verses. That is of primary concern to Matthew. Why? Because, if you remember, Abraham is the one to whom God made rich promises of land and seed and blessing, indicating, through you, I will work out my intentions for redemptive history. And then it gets to David, and he says, and now... I fold in the promises given to Abraham into the covenant that I set on David's shoulders. 
and there will never lack a man on the throne of David, and I will ultimately establish a king who will bring to completion my intentions in redemptive history. Those two figures in particular are of critical importance as we consider who this man Jesus really is. And Matthew wants you to know above all things, he has the right heritage. He is the Christ because he is descended from Abraham and he is descended from David. It would be perhaps similar to how we might use a a DNA test in our day. It's entirely plausible that in a court of law today, a judge would ask for a DNA test to be taken. And when the results come through, there's no quibbling, there's no pushback. It stands as proof. Likewise with Matthew recording this genealogy. He leads with it because it is an emphatic declaration as to who this man Jesus really is. Now, it may be that you've never really asked the question that Matthew is responding to. We come here for the most part, if not completely, without a sense of the the Jewish expectation for a Messiah, and we don't ask necessarily the same questions that Matthew is answering here by recording a genealogy. But whether we've asked the Jewish question or not is really irrelevant. It's irrelevant whether we've asked the question to which the genealogy responds because here history confronts us. History confronts every single one of us this morning. And the text is asking whether you would learn from history. We never learn from history. The adage is the only thing we learn from history is that we never learn from it. I'm reading a book right now that is tracing out the developments in Germany in the years leading up to the war. The book is set in the early 1930s, several years before World War II began, looking at the developments in government and society that led to that war. What is astounding, astounding to me, the persistent thought that is in my mind as I hear what is going on in Germany at this time is just how close in the rearview mirror was World War I. Within living memory are some of the worst atrocities in the history of mankind, and people have not learned from them. They're racing towards another world war. We don't learn from history. This morning, history confronts us. And the question is whether we are living our lives in light of this history, whether we have made the appropriate response to Matthew's genealogy, the appropriate response being twofold. First and foremost, that you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, that you've looked to Christ and accepted that God has made a payment for sin and it will not be found anywhere else, but only at the cross. If you remember back to last week, inherent to Matthew's announcement that Jesus is the Christ, inherent to that announcement, embedded all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, 
is an anticipation that whoever is the Christ, they will fix the problem of sin. That's in the Old Testament and it bleeds through into Matthew's announcement. It is not an announcement of just another king, but a king who is going to fix the problems of mankind. And so as Matthew traces out his genealogy, the most appropriate response, the response that the text demands, is that you would acknowledge your sin before a holy God and look to Christ as the only solution. It's asking just about the most personal question you could ever ask of anyone. I have a friend who's a philosopher studied philosophy at university, and he loves to debate things concerning God, the nature of God, how God interacts with his creation. And these are good questions. They're fine. They're not wrong questions. But in so many senses, they avoid the real issue. And so at some point in the conversation, I... And forced to say, but what do you think of Jesus? What do you think of Jesus? You can't keep the conversation in the abstract. You ground it in history. And you ground it in history by asking, what is your response to this man? And of course, my friend will go where just about everybody else will go and say, well... He really did teach some good things. But again, that's avoiding the issue. The problem there is that the Bible doesn't present Jesus merely as a good teacher. We know he's a good teacher. In just a few weeks, uh, months, we'll say that, (laughs) we will be in the Sermon on the Mount. You realize how disconcerting that is? For me to think that in a short space of time, my job will be to explain the best sermon ever preached so as to help you and not detract from the sermon. You can pray for me. (laughs) No one is disputing whether Christ was a good teacher, but Scripture doesn't allow you to stop there. It doesn't present Jesus only as a good teacher. It makes outrageous claims concerning his nature and his mission. This is God in the flesh. And he came to make a payment for sin. Sin that is yours. And so to live in light of this history is to take ownership of your sin. To acknowledge it before a holy God. To confess that you can make no payment, but Jesus has. That is what it means to respond to this genealogy. Now that's just the first implication. The second follows on. And this comes, and I love the way Matthew presents Jesus, specifically as king. That is Matthew's particular emphasis In Matthew's gospel, the constant drumbeat from the very first verse until the last is that Jesus is the king. The emphasis is slightly different as we move between gospels. Matthew's gospel highlights his kingship. And I love that because the implications 
of trusting in faith that Jesus is a Savior, readily follow on. If he is your king who has made a payment for sin, then he surely is one that you obey. Not as a means to earning his favor. Not as a means to earning his grace. We're not obeying Jesus as a means to getting salvation. It is a gift of grace to you from God. We respond with thankful hearts for the gift of salvation by doing everything we can to get our lives under the commands of Christ. We live out a life of obedience, thereby demonstrating our trust in Jesus. So if you've readily made the profession that Christ is your Savior this morning, just consider wherein there are still areas in your life of disobedience. If there are still areas in your life of disobedience, are you living in light of this history? The second question is, are you living in light of this theology? Are you living in light of this theology? It's very important to understand as the biblical writers recorded a genealogy, they were not writing a lab report or a scientific document. Now, please don't misunderstand me. The genealogies in the Bible are true. They are historically accurate. Matthew has recorded for us a historically accurate record of Jesus' lineage. But the biblical writers had some artistic license afforded to them as they wrote these genealogies, meaning they were able to shape the genealogy within the confines of history, historical fact, to serve a purpose. They had license to leave out names if they wanted. And those that received the genealogy would know that the names were missing and they would not point the finger and say, Matthew's trying to deceive us. They understood it was in Matthew's remit to leave out the names if he wanted to. The biblical writers had the license to include other family names that were in some way linked if they so desired. Consider just for a moment the book of Genesis. Genesis is full of genealogies. And there are many different types of genealogy in Genesis. Within Genesis, there are some genealogies which, if we were to trace them out on a sheet of paper, we would end up with something that looks like a family tree, as you and I know it today. There are genealogies in Genesis where the, the father is recorded, and then all of his sons, sometimes their wives, then all of their children, and on it goes. And you end up with something that looks like a family tree. There are those genealogies in Genesis. In the same book, there are other genealogies, which if we were to chart them on a piece of paper, would look like a straight line. Wherein Moses has recorded the father, one of his sons, one of his sons, one of his sons. And it is highly unlikely that in those genealogies there were no other children born. Rather, Moses is being very selective so as to trace out one single straight line to suit his purpose 
in the narrative at that point. Now, when you come to understand that, that they are not writing a lab report, but forming a theology, something that goes beyond mere history, but gives to us theology, that then beckons us to consider, well, what was Matthew doing as he traced out Jesus' lineage? And there are several features that we can note. One is Matthew's concern for 14. Verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, if you really wrestle with these names, what you come to find is that Matthew has left out some of the Old Testament kings. There are at least five that are recorded in the Old Testament and are not in this genealogy. Matthew's leaving them out, and he's allowed to do that. It doesn't all of a sudden become historically inaccurate. No one would be pointing the finger at Matthew in his day, saying, you're trying to trick us. But rather, Matthew has a concern to etch out a history that centers around the number of 14. Why? There's an awful lot of debate as to why. I would say, at the very least, Matthew wants to present this lineage as complete. In the same way that in our society, seven would represent the notion of completeness, Matthew doesn't want to reduce the genealogy down to seven, so he does two times seven, 14. Over and over, 14 generations, this is now complete. Beyond that, Matthew is is highlighting portions of Old Testament history which make manifest God's glory as he worked out his plan. Keith asked me this week, he said, I thought you were going to preach a sermon on every single name in this genealogy. I said, Keith, I can barely read these names. But just to consider a few, he begins with Abraham. God promised Abraham land seed blessing at the end of one of the darkest portions of God's word, 1 through 11 of Genesis. As you read 1 through 11 of Genesis, you are left with the awareness that we cannot fix the problem of sin that is far greater than we could ever have imagined, and God needs to provide a solution. Enter God, chapter 12 of Genesis, and he bestows promises on Abraham, rich promises that signal he is going to work out a plan through this man. Consider Jacob and his sons. In Genesis 49, he blesses the 12 sons, projecting forward what will become of this nation. And he gives a very peculiar blessing to Judah, saying, there will come from you one who holds the scepter. And his eyes will be bright, and the nations will come and worship. The obedience of the nations will be unto this man. And when he reigns, says Jacob, the kingdom on the earth, will be of Edenic proportions. God's glory was manifest in those promises. Consider Boaz in verse 5. We read this morning from the book of Ruth. Don't forget when Ruth is set, in the time when the judge is judged. A terrible time in Israel's history where men were not men. A complete absence of leadership. And a downward spiral through the book of Judges. And at that time, Boaz stands up. 
Boaz stands up and is a kinsman redeemer to Ruth and to Naomi. He provides for them. He shows himself to be a vessel of grace to them. And God's glory is made manifest through him. Consider David. The man after God's own heart. Who was the complete opposite of Saul. He ruled over Israel. And God was pleased to set his promises on David and say, I will sustain your line forever. There shall never lack a man on the throne of David. And through this line, I will give rest. That is part of the Davidic covenant. I will give to you rest. How? Through the king who comes from David. And God's glory is made manifest in that episode of history. Consider Solomon. David's son who built the temple who constructed the temple, and in 1 Kings, we see one of the greatest expressions of worship in all of the Bible. As all of Israel come and worship God, and His very presence descends and fills the temple. And God's glory is made manifest through Him. Consider the deportation. Verse 11, at the time of the deportation to Babylon, the exile. God warned his people over and over again. His patience with them was ongoing. And he sent prophet after prophet after prophet to warn them. Repent of your sin. Acknowledge your sin. Come to me and find grace. But their hearts were hard and they would not turn and so He is true to his word. God is true to his word as he banishes his people from the land. He allows the very temple to be destroyed. And in that we see his glory. Do you consider the glory of God as as made manifest in his judgment? The glory of God as made plain for the nations to see. As he will not tolerate sin. This holy God disciplines his people and in that period of redemptive history, his glory is made manifest. Consider then the return. Verse 10, 12, Shealtiel and Zerubbabel leading the charge as the people come back as God is so kind to permit their captivity in Babylon to come to an end. Comfort, comfort my people. Because your warfare is ended, says the prophet Isaiah to his people. And God in his kindness permits a return to the land. And therein his glory is seen. Consider the virgin birth. Look in verse 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. I wondered as I read the text this morning whether you picked up on the change in rhythm. Matthew establishes a rhythm in his genealogy. Abraham, the father of Isaac. A, the father of B. B, the father of C. And on and on it goes with the same rhythm until we get to verse 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph. Joseph, the father of Jesus. It doesn't say that. Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born. 
just a slight inflection in what Matthew is doing, which is his way of pointing us to the glory of God as manifested in the virgin birth. That God would send his son to live amongst us and that he would be born through a woman who knew no relations with man. And therein, God's wondrous mystery is revealed to us in the birth of a Savior. Can you see that Matthew, as he records this genealogy, is not concerned with history only, but is desiring to give us theology, namely God's glory as it has been worked out throughout redemptive history up until the point of the revelation of Christ. This is Matthew's theology and the text questions whether we are living in light of it. Whether we are living in light of this theology. Now what does it mean to live in light of this theology? It means to meditate on these truths. Would you ponder in your quiet time a genealogy? It means to meditate on these truths and to understand that God's glory in the revelation of His Son is by no means diminished, but finds its culmination in Him. As God's glory is seen through the life of Abraham and Judah and Boaz and David and on and on the list goes, as God's glory has been plain throughout the pages of the Old Testament, it is by no means diminished at the point of Jesus' birth, but finds its utmost culmination in the revelation of His Son. You sit here this morning in union with that Son. Come back this evening as we work through Ephesians. One of the constant motifs that Paul gives to us in that letter is in Christ. As we work through Ephesians in the evening over and over and over again, Paul tells us that we are in union with Christ. One of the richest theological truths of the Christian life. As you have been brought into union with Christ, that same glory that has been working through redemptive history and finds its culmination in the revelation of His Son is now spilling forth into your life. You are in union with Christ and God's glory is spilling over into your life. Is that how you think about your day-to-day living? That I am a product of, a vessel of, a recipient of God's glory. God is working out His glory in your life in ways that you could not imagine. In ways that you will only come to understand when you reach glory. And we have increased understanding and we can look back and we can say, I see the glory of God in my life. Now, to live in light of that theology means that the Christian has no place for anxiety. The Christian is not to be fearful. We could spin out the implications of this all day. I just give you one to live in light of this theology, to see God's glory through redemptive history, now being channeled through Christ spilling into your life in so much as you are in union with Him means there is absolutely no reason to be anxious, to be fearful, 
about anything. If you come here and you are crippled by a fear of things in the world, if you are anxious about the circumstances that the Lord has set before you, would you just ponder the manifestation of God's glory all through the Bible and the truth of that glory now finding you out in Christ. This is what it means to live in light of this theology. Third, final question that the text confronts us with. Are you living in light of this history? Are you living in light of this theology? Thirdly, are you living in light of this grace? Are you living in light of this grace? Now, certainly, this could have come under question number two. Grace is a theological category, and we could have considered this under question two, but I I bring it out as a separate question because it's a particular accent of Matthew's in this genealogy to highlight, to showcase God's grace. There are a number of women listed in this genealogy. Five in total. The last one being Mary. Before that we have Tamar. We have Rahab. We have the wife of Uriah. And we have Ruth. It would have been somewhat unprecedented for Matthew to include women. He was not bound to do it. This is another thing that Matthew is choosing to do so as to present the history with a particular emphasis. So let's just think through these women. Tamar, Genesis chapter 38. She marries one of Judah's sons. That son then dies. Because of the requirements of the law, Judah then gives his second son to Tamar. He then dies. Judah thinks that his sons are dying because of Tamar, that there's something wrong about Tamar and he's losing his sons. He's got one son left. Moses tells us it's got nothing to do with Tamar. The sons are dying because they are evil in the sight of the Lord. So Judah tells a lie to Tamar. He deceives her. He says, I'll give you the last son I have, but when he's fully grown. So right now, just go home to your parents. He has no intention of giving that last son. What Tamar then does is disguise herself. She disguises herself and she tricks Judah. She tricks Judah into having relations with her. It is one of the most terrible episodes in all of Scripture. One of the most embarrassing episodes in Israel's history. If you or I had been given the role of orchestrating redemptive history. Around about Genesis 38, we would have hit stop. We would have hit pause, we would have hit cancel and say the plan is off. There is no way that God can work through such a terrible episode as this. But God perseveres. In his sovereign grace, he works out his plan through such a terrible episode. More than that, 
as the Holy Spirit carries Matthew along so as to write Scripture, God causes Matthew to draw attention to it. Matthew is prompted to include reference to the episode in the genealogy. He did not have to, and yet here it is, so as to remind us, not so much of the sin, but of God's grace working through sinners. Consider Rahab. Most probably, this is a reference to Rahab, as found in the book of Joshua. She is labeled, identified in that book as a prostitute. She is not an Israelite. She is a prostitute, not an Israelite, and she tells a lie to save and protect God's spies, but the rightness, the appropriateness of that lie is for another Sunday. I'm not opening that can of worms now. Rahab was not an Israelite, and she was a prostitute. If you or I had been orchestrating redemptive history, we would have gone around her. We wouldn't choose to include her in the genealogy. God is pleased to display his grace through her. She has eyes of faith. She is brought into God's people. And now she stands as part of the heritage of Christ. And again, Matthew is prompted to include her so as to remind us not only of the history, but of God's grace in that history. Similarly, consider Ruth, another woman in the genealogy of Christ. Again, the salient point being, she is not an Israelite. She is from Moab, listed throughout the Bible as God's enemy. She is a Moabitess. She too acts commendably. She too has eyes of faith. But she's not an Israelite. And so as God has made clear all the way through the Old Testament law, you are to marry your own people. You're not to go and marry a foreigner. As that is a clear precedent set in God's word, here we find the Moabites in Jesus' genealogy. Matthew draws attention to the fact that though you and I would have given up by this stage, God perseveres and showcases his grace to us. Consider Bathsheba. David was the man after God's own heart, except for when he wasn't. And he wasn't when he had an affair with Bathsheba. Uriah's out, he's fighting the war, and David's at home when he shouldn't have been. And David sees this beautiful woman, and he has her brought to him. And they have relations, and now she's pregnant. So now David has to cover up the sin, so he, he brings Uriah back. He's wicked, he, he deceives Uriah, he sends Uriah to his house in the hope that Uriah would know his wife and then all would be covered up, but Uriah is an honorable man and he won't do it. So now David is in a real hard situation, trying to cover up his sin, and sin leads to more sin, so then he sends Uriah to the forefront of the fighting at a time where there need not have been any fighting because they were besieging the city. They're just camping around the city waiting for the enemy to starve and to die. They did not need to force the fighting. 
But that's exactly what David does. He sends instruction to make sure you rise at the very front. And the enemy in the city still have strength, so they shoot and they kill Uriah as well, as well as other innocent men. So now the blood of these men is on David's hands, but his sin is covered. It is a horrific episode in the life of David and in the history of Israel. And if you or I had been in charge of redemptive history at this point, we would say there is no hope. There is no way that the Messiah can come from this line. And yet God perseveres in his grace. More than that, he carries along Matthew by the Holy Spirit in order to prompt him to include reference to Bathsheba, not even by her name. Did you notice the particular accent that draws attention to the sin Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. He could have labeled her as Bathsheba, but so as to remind us of that episode and above all things, the manifestation of God's grace through it. He labels her the wife of Uriah. The implication for us to to, to live in light of this grace is to understand, first and foremost, to be reminded and refreshed to the fact that not one of us here deserves our salvation. We don't come here on a Sunday morning as sinners, saved by our good efforts and God's grace. That's not how we come. You never had a single thought Never had a single inclination of your heart that prompted God to say, I'm going to save this individual. There was not one thing you did prior to salvation that pleased God. You didn't prompt him to show the gospel of salvation to you, to cause you to be born again. Not one of us deserves the salvation that we have received. We are all of us trophies of God's grace. Know this. As he has saved you, so his grace is at work in your life every single day to sustain you. Just as he saved you. Just as God did not give up throughout redemptive history, through these terrible episodes, just as he did not give up, he will not give up on you. This is an area where I think we are particularly prone to misunderstand God's grace. We might joyfully proclaim, I am a sinner saved by grace alone. But then we do our utmost to earn God's favor each and every day, failing to acknowledge that in the gospel we have God's favor. He delights in us and celebrates us because of the death and resurrection of His Son. We are clothed in Christ's righteousness, and for that reason, God delights in you. And for that reason, He will not give up on you. He has started a very good work in you, and He will not fail to bring it to completion. And so finally, understand... That just as God's grace brought you to the point of saving faith in Christ, just as his faith sustains you each and every day to love him, 
God's grace will deliver you to that final day when Christ appears. If you are in Christ this morning, He will cause you to persevere so that you will stand before Christ at His revelation. And there you will worship Him forever. The implication there is that the Christian should be joy-filled. If you're living in light of this theology, you are not anxious nor fearful that you are joy-filled. It should be the mark of the Christian community because we understand God's grace to us in the gospel. Let's pray to close. Our Father, we praise you this morning for the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the historical record of Christ's heritage. We praise you that he is descended from Abraham and from David. And that there alone we see proof that he is the long-awaited for king, the Messiah who saves his people from their sins. Father, help us live in light of this history. I pray right now for anyone here who does not know the blessing of sins forgiven, who has not entered into the domain of saving grace, but who this very morning is an enemy of God. Be gracious. Quicken their hearts to acknowledge their sin. To take ownership of their sin and confess that they have offended you. And that there is nothing they can do to fix the problem. But that Jesus has done everything. May they find in him a savior. Lord, help us to live in light of this history, conforming our lives in obedience to Christ's commands. Help us to bring to mind day by day that we serve a king who has been so kind to us and who now places responsibility at our feet, namely in gratitude to live out a life of obedience. Father, I pray that you'd help us to live in light of this theology. We see in this historical record more than mere data, but it is bursting with your glory. Your glory as it has been made plain through the Old Testament and finds its culmination in the revelation of your Son. Help us to embrace this glory and understand that in Christ we stand as the happy beneficiaries of your glory. Father, release us from anxiety and fear. 
May we not be crippled by a fear that is at odds with the theology of the gospel. But strengthen us to live in light of this theology. And Father, we would pray that you'd help us to live in light of this grace. We see your grace the grace that was intent on working out your purposes through some of the most terrible episodes in the history of the nation of Israel. We would have been prone to to give up, to walk away. We would have found no hope, but your grace is greater than our sin. And we see how you marvelously sustained your plan through such sinners to bring about the arrival of the king and it is that same grace that comes to us not deserving of salvation and yet your grace is what saves us father help us to come to terms with the reality of your grace on a day by day basis We have your good pleasure in Christ. We have your favor in Christ. You love us. And it is all of grace. And you will see us to the end. No matter how many times we fail you every day, you will not give up on us you'll finish the work that you've begun. And on that great and glorious day, we will praise you. May we be marked by joy because of your grace to us as we see it in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in his name. Amen.